Let's stand for the reading of the word. Well done, people. Uh, Philippians 4, verses 1 to 7. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Udia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they have worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So just a few light issues um, to track through this morning. Um, I feel like today's section of scripture kind of reads like a catalogue of all the things I don't love to be challenged in. So things like conflict, and then conflict resolution, and being told to do something you don't want to do, where that something is about rejoicing, and having to be reasonable with other people, and anxiety, and being told to do something again, where that something is about not worrying, and communicating honestly with God, and letting God be in charge of things, and praying about everything. So we are in the nitty-gritty this morning, um, in the letter to the Philippians. And this is actually the part of the letter where Paul is winding down. As Sam would say multiple times, he's coming into land. He's circling. I get to say that. (laughs) Um, But it's still packing a couple of punches on the way out. So he's not kind of, you know, wrapping up the letter. Good luck, carry on. He's really coming in with some punches at the end. So let's go back and look at verse 1 overlapping with um, what Luke shared last week. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. So this verse echoes all the themes that have been explored in chapter three. In fact, all the themes that have been explored in the whole book of Philippians, where Paul has been urging and encouraging the Philippians to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stephen Fell says it this way, that Paul both advocates and displays a set of habits and dispositions which will help the Philippians in their struggle to live faithfully before God in a context that is hostile to them. So that's what sets us up for this section of scripture that we're going to look at. But it also provides the big picture for where Paul is about to apply it, which is in verse 2. Now I appeal to you, dear and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. So verse 1 is a reminder of what he's calling everyone in the church to on a kind of macro level. Stay true to the Lord, remain steadfast, be a community in the gospel, be as one person of one spirit. And verse 2 is where it actually plays out in reality, in the micro level, really up close and personal. Now you'll also notice too that verse 1 lands with a wee bit of buttering up. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, blah, 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 I love you. I long to see you, dear friends. You are my joy. You are the crown for which I receive for my work. I think of it as a wee bit of bait and switch. You are my joy and my crown. My dear friends, I love you. I'm proud of you. Sudden segue, here's some stuff you must work out immediately in your church. And he goes straight into narrow appeal to you, dear, and Syntyche. So don't be alarmed. It's not deep cynicism that leads me to that conclusion. It's actually just parenting. If you have parented, we have a thing called I love you but. 
where we say, and in case you're not familiar or you might need to use it, I love you, now please go to bed. I love you, but please sit still. I love you, but please stop talking. I love you, but please get off your phone. I love you, but please do the dishes. Just random examples I thought of. And it just comes with the territory. And here's my proof. Verse 2 opens with a resounding now. Sounding a lot like a mother about to download some serious thoughts with a strong sense of urgency and with all the intention of remaining calm and positive and remembering her stupid parenting strategies, but in fact breathing just a little too loud and speeding up as she talks. Now, I appeal to Udia and Sintiki. This is bravely personal. This is awkwardly public. There is no anonymity or a general message to the masses that Paul previously has done. Those moments when the listeners would know that Paul is actually talking to them, but he hasn't said their name. Paul is quite careful to not mention names at other times, and he's been very mindful of that previously. But there are also no sides. Paul urges an appeal to Udia and Sintiki. There's no bias. It's named at both of them. Straight up, honest, and coming of a back of a call to remember the way of Jesus. N.T. writes uh, comments and says this, A word addressed in public to both parties might just break the deadlock, though you'd have to know what you were doing. It might make it worse. N.T. Wright then graciously assumes that Paul does in fact know what he's doing in this particular case, which is lucky, as a very public appeal could come to a very public crisis. So Yudia and Sintiki are both women, but this is not a gender issue. This is not about women and leadership and Paul needing to put them in their place. These women have worked hard for Paul as partners in his gospel, sharing the good news with him. He spells this out very clearly in verse 3. These are his co-workers. Their names are written in the book of life. Rest assured, no one is in trouble here yet. So this is about two people who serve in a church, who are known to each other and known to everyone else. And if they weren't known before, then they are totally known now. Because I'm imagining there'd be some serious whispering, just some entering it on the prayer list. People kind of pointing in the congregation and just being grateful it's not them. And so perhaps for Yudi and Sintiki, there was a moment, a little bit of a misunderstanding, that then gave way to a disagreement, then got fueled with some bitterness and some resentment thrown in the mix. And then it was left a little too long and no one actually talked to them about it. And now it's clearly overflowed in front of the whole community to the point where it needs to be awkwardly addressed in front of the whole community. So that's quite interesting because perhaps that could be a little bit like Jen and me. And I, it does actually remind me of a small issue of resentment that I do have bubbling up. And just following the biblical pattern, I thought we could just discuss it now. Um, so we go to up. I'll just move. <laughs> we go to upper click, and Jen orders drinks randomly. You know those people. And so some weeks she'll have a herbal tea, and she's super excited about it. Some weeks she'll go decaf for a variety of reasons that she will share. Sometimes she just straight coffee. Sometimes there's actually been a sparkling black currant. Once or twice there was a seasonal honey drink, and with no warning she once just straight up had water. And I've noticed it. And church, it's a little disconcerting. And obviously it has the potential to derail the harmony of the entire group. It's like she's arrived with no premeditated plan for what she's going to drink. It's almost like she is enjoying the moment. She'll start chatting before she's even sat down. She just goes with whatever takes her fancy, whatever she's feeling or she needs. 
I'm not prepared to function in that kind of chaos at eight o'clock, no, seven o'clock on a Wednesday morning. I stick to a consistent hot drink, pre-programmed in my mind, as it's the one I like. And I need to start the day with a sense of order. It's clear without getting stuck in the detail that Earl Grey tea is superior. (laughs) Served slightly heady-handed with trim milk every single time. I don't succumb to bouts of whimsy. And I don't believe that we should. Despite being labelled by some as rigid and overly structured, more of an eel than a tigger, perhaps even a little difficult to deal with. And so upon the serious matter of difference, the bitterness leaks out. Opinions are shared. Assumptions are made. Hurts gather momentum and grow like infected selves. Sides are taken. Rifts form and set like immovable concrete. And you may laugh, but the whole community could be impacted. The cracks start to show. The wisdom and neutrality of Steve Bradley is required. Steve ponders what to do, and he takes a risk. Steve recognises a crisis when he sees one. And even though Steve is not supposed to attend our woman's upper clique, he observes the weight of a fractured relationship, knowing that a public outing is potentially harmful, but trusting that it's a short circuit as a wake-up call to humility to understanding, to remembering who we are, to what defines us and holds us together, ultimately to unity. Steve calls out the truth and writes a letter. You belong to God, and for this reason, you must settle this. And just in case, in my slightly overextended analogy, you've lost the point, this is verse two. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. Please, Paul writes with my words added, for the love of all things beautiful and for the sake of us all in this community and the cruciform life we are called to, because you belong to God, settle your disagreement. Settle it together. Don't form a side or a faction. Resolve it, not necessarily to be right or point out where one is wrong, but consider your collective belonging to the Lord. Consider another option, the call to unity, the call to community, the call to humility. And while we are all grateful that the whimsical drink choice debacle of 2023 didn't in fact get out of hand, and this is just all a little bit of silliness, and Jen continues to be one of my favourite people who can drink whatever she likes, whenever she likes, because she's amazing, and she's passionate about almost anything, and she leads consistently with enthusiasm and humility and grace, and she ridiculously loves this community. But... Silliness aside, we still need to be aware that we succumb to unsettled and irksomeness in community. You may not be upset about random drink choices, but another thought may have crossed your mind. And sadly, we are not exceptional as Christians. In fact, sometimes we're worse. And we're not exempt from bitterness. And we're not exempt from resentment. And we do, in fact, mishandle our conflict. And we don't come with handbooks explaining what kind of people we are with our deeply reasonable, specific reasons for why we do what we do. We are awfully human. We are prone to disappointment. We will disappoint one another. We sometimes don't like other people, particularly those people who are not like us. And we will get stuff wrong. Beth Moore writes that by singling them out, Yudia and Sintiki, Paul makes them accountable to himself, but even more importantly, to the entire Philippian congregation. And then Beth Moore makes this link back to the Christ hymn from chapter 2 that instructs the Philippians to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ. Christ's kind of thinking in verse 5 is the one that looks after the interests of others and takes a posture of humility. 
She goes on to say that bearing that in mind that these two women are women of integrity, it is possible that in community we can actually assist people in finding their way back to a place of peace with one another. That is our goal. So hold these threads together. Humility, unity, settledness, community, and peace. Paul is weaving something for us here. So we're getting more comfortable with acknowledging that it's in community that we are wounded. We're doing a better job at that. Often we tell others. We find similarly-minded people and then we hunker down there together, which can, unchecked, become dangerous and isolating. However, we also need to remember that it's in community where we are healed, that we are in fact part of a body, a body that is built on many intricate systems, running itself with beautiful synchronicity and integration, a body that at the same time is not perfect, but like Voltron with its powers combined, it becomes a beautiful space for accountability, for support, for formational practices, for encouragement, for funny stories, for prayer needs, for serving together, for meals for tired new mums and dads, for wheat bicks to go in the food pantry, for rosters that hold bay kids together, for baking for Sad Day's team out there serving in the local community, for difficult conversations, for access to services, for communion, for home churches, for transparency. The list goes on. This is a roller coaster of ordinary moments between sorrow and joy that we get to share together. These are the hallmarks of a functioning community. These are the non-consuming behaviours of a people who show up to be part of something bigger than themselves. In 2005, after a very, very difficult year for us as a family, we left our slightly cult-like church. Don't be alarmed, we're okay. They didn't really want to be a church, and we threw ourselves then into the very opposite of what we had been immersed in. We were lonely, we were disconnected, and we were confused. We were faced with the choice of bailing on the whole church thing altogether. We were faced with the choice to turn in on ourselves, to protect ourselves, to lick our wounds and shut down, or to reach out to something that we kind of at our core still believed in, despite being hurt and rejected and disillusioned. So we arrived at something completely different. We went to Christchurch City, Elam Church. These guys had it sorted. They had a parking supervisor. <laughs> he wore an orange vest, and I deeply appreciated him. Luke wasn't able to drive for medical reasons, and Cass was only one years old. So it was down to me. And as I pulled up every Sunday, slightly frazzled by the whole process of actually getting there, this beautiful man whose name I don't know ushered me into a park close by the door for parents of small children every Sunday. He smiled and I felt welcome and safe, like someone was telling me it was going to be okay. Church was a culture shock for us, though. We had sat with the cynical, the right, the detached for so long that we were blindsided by the big fluffy mascot who gave out chocolate and the choir and the actual real-life preschool facilities and the real coffee machine and the systems and the energy. But all of that was exactly what we needed in that season. It was community. We actually made life-giving friends. We slowly unwound from the pain and we just sat there and we were loved and we were served. We did not lift a finger. We sat there like we were in need of triage. We were bandaged, connected to an IV, we were dazed, and we were grateful. And that was it for a year. 
That was us tentatively leaning into healing. That saved our trajectory of embracing community. And it was not a perfect example of a church. It was just a community. It was just a slow undoing that warmed our hearts again for the call to loving and serving the greater church and embracing community. That was the trajectory that eventually took us to Beach Campus in New Brighton for seven years and some wild and crazy pastors who you might know who still love the church too and thought they'd invite us to plant one. (laughs) We've only looked at the first three verses, but I couldn't get past them. I wanted to just read them, teach them and move on. But there's something about Paul's boldness to publicly call out where he's heard of a lack of unity. And we could just decide to see this as not necessarily the most strategic leadership wisdom. We could say, let's not the best way to apply um, information to every resentment and bitterness that's bubbling away. I could suggest to Paul that a direct process would have been more suitable. One that includes support people, maybe counsellors, maybe a bit of supervision, maybe a bit of discussion back and forth and obviously a cup of tea. But Paul went this way for a reason and it has tugged at my heart for the same reason because the risk he took represents the high value of how he loved the Philippians and how he loved their community. He is stoked with the Philippians. He boasts about them. They are his joy. They are his crown and he knows that they are more than this, that they are a community of healing, not a community of wounding, that they will become the example of unity and humility. It tugged at my heart because I love this community, Bay Vineyard, and I know there are church wounds here this morning, and bandages in need of attention, and brokenness and unresolved bitterness, and I see you, and Jesus sees you, and he loves his bride. We see you as a church. If you look around, you'll realise that most of us walk with a bit of a limp. To quote quote Rich Velotis, he says this, we are wounded in community and we are healed in community. There is no way around it. Healing might not come from the community where the wounding took place, but community is needed for healing nonetheless. The cost of community is this, we risk hurt, we risk rejection, When we're vulnerable, we risk being misunderstood, but it's worth it. We are healed, we are safe, we belong, we are connected, we are supported, and we are something other than just ourselves when we are here together. And then just like that, might need a small breath, everybody, Paul is about to pivot and set aside that massive issue. He doesn't process that out further. He doesn't provide people with advice and wisdom and say, look, do you know what? Just gather in small groups and process what that's looking for you. He hasn't called for a ministry time. He just effortlessly pivots, sets that aside and launches straight into verse four with a reminder to celebrate. And everyone at the church in Philippi breathed a sigh of relief that the list was not longer that morning and no more conflict resolution was going to take place. Verse four, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Verse five, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. The Lord is near. So joy is one of Paul's loops, one of his familiar repetitive calls to rejoice throughout the book of Philippians. One of those things you can't actually argue with him about or roll your eyes about because he's in prison and it's his letter. So where the Bible can feel unclear in places and in need of deep digging into exegesis, this is not one of those moments. This is a spelled out, do this, 
do it again moment. So we can't get to the end of Philippians and pretend we haven't heard this message. It's a major theme throughout Philippians. And it's also a major attitude that Paul is going after. Joy through situations, defiant joy, joy despite circumstances, joy not based on feelings and happiness, joy that bubbles away when there is absolutely no reason for it to. Joy is mentioned and it's hotly contested between commentaries and the internet, but at least 11 times in Philippians. And Beth Moore puts it this way, rejoicing in the Lord requires that one be formed to perceive things in very particular ways. Ways that run counter to the conventional patterns of perception. Further, it would appear then that rejoicing is not something that Christians will simply do as a matter of course. Instead, it's a result from a disciplined formation on our ways of thinking and acting in the world. So joy is formed. It's formational. It's counterintuitive as a pattern. It's about perception. It's not necessarily spontaneous, and it's not necessarily guaranteed. It's not a natural response just by being a Christian. It requires discipline. It's about how we think and how we act. And while I've mentioned that it feels like Paul is just throwing out one-liners left, right, and center as he concludes this letter, it does seem that he is making connections, some patterns that can be placed together as we look at our attitudes as a community, as we look personally at as our thinking, at our responses, at our actions and our focus and our discipline and our heart. And interestingly, alongside the culture, um, counterculture phenomena, phenomena of joy, Paul suddenly places the word consideration or graciousness, the gentleness and reasonableness of being a tempered and aware person in terms of how we're acting and seen by others. Paul seems to be going after this. Not only are we to be a healthy, healing community, strong in unity and humility, with a clear purpose and one spirit, we're also to celebrate well, being intentionally joyful, defiantly joyful at times, and then somehow manage to present ourselves graciously to others if required. And Paul would answer yes, yes to all those things. Beth Moore again, framing it up this way, in an era as divisive as ours, may we be counted among a patient, gentle remnant of people who know when to yield, when to overlook an offence, and when to let someone else have the last word. And I would add, as hard as that can be. Remember back in chapter 2, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. This is Paul playing this out in reality for us now in chapter four. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest but again he says take an interest in others too he's making his point he's coming into land again and again with a little more application a little more depth he's applying and preempting an educational theory called the spiral teaching method from psychologist and educationist Jerome Brunner so um 
very fancy diagram to explain that to you, but it's basically that, cyclical learning, going back over things and revisiting them and slowly increasing the level of learning and then relating the new learning to the previous learning. It's a wee bit of an educational geek fest of excitement and it's absolutely brilliant and it can be easily summarised as that picture, but this is what Paul is doing. He's picking up things he said before, he's circling back over them, he's putting the application in and he's making his point again. And sometimes, and I know for us, this is not just theory that I'm glossing over. Over the past few years, we have been challenged in following Jesus to have boundaries and then sometimes to know that we're the voice that needs to speak up. Sometimes we've had to speak up for others and sometimes we've had to be tolerant of others. Sometimes we've had to hold back our opinions but show an awful lot of grace. Sometimes we've had to be right up there alongside someone that we must speak truth to with care and clarity despite the resistance. It's been a lot, and it's been modelled in the life of Christ so we know it's okay where we're heading. Christ himself shows himself as humility. And Beth Moore's prayer for us is this, God help us by the Spirit discern what is superior moment by moment. It's really obvious from Paul's writing that there's not a clear answer every single time. Sometimes you will need to bring the joy. Sometimes you will need to bring the consideration. At all times, be humble in how we do this. The second part of verse 5 says, remember the Lord is coming soon, or in other translations, the Lord is near. And it's lovely how this has been inserted. Once again, it could easily feel random that he's moving from different thoughts as he, quick, and as he quickly remembers things I'd like to tell them before my letter wraps up. But the Lord's nearness, the reminder of our sure future and the bigger picture, reads as an, an encouragement, an affirmation of his availability to us, his saving grace and his accessibility in prayer, in difficult circumstances, in heartache, and in forbearance. And Stephen Fowle makes this lovely link between verse 5 and verse 6. Because the Lord is near, the Philippians are not to be anxious about anything. Now, I have some difficulty with verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need, and thank him for all he has done. It's very clear somewhat prescriptive, and it seems like good wisdom, but I wrestle with what it's asking. And not to discredit Paul and his situation, but I can with no hesitation whatsoever on any day, at any moment, very easily worry about everything. Literally all the things, ranging from the real to the ridiculous, the immediate to the imagined, the big to the small, and I can do this with great skill and specificity. I can simultaneously worry about everything and subsequently not pray about any of it, anything. So I am struggling with the first lines of verse 6. I see them another way. And then as I read further, it turns out that I'm also not good at asking God for what I need, despite Paul's clear advice. It seems that this may go hand in hand with worrying. And then as for thankfulness, which he throws in there too, well, this has been a journey, a practice I'm committing to without much evidence of fluency, but a lot of fluster. It's right up there with Pilates and <laughs> dusting and trying not to eat too many carbs. I don't find that thankfulness comes to mind, though, when I'm panicking about the words I've said that I shouldn't. I don't instantly think, gosh, I'm so thankful that I couldn't shut my mouth in that conversation. Thankfulness doesn't come to mind when I'm juggling too many things on the calendar. Thankfulness doesn't come to mind when I'm driving on the expressway with the petrol light coming on. It does not come to mind in those circumstances. It doesn't come to mind when I wake up in the night with lists of random scenarios of things I must sort out right then and there. It's just not a natural transition for me. 
Beth Moore reminds us that we can present our urgent requests with thanksgiving because the Lord's nearness means he is never far from the cries of his people. It may turn out that it's more about him than it is about us. Psalm 34 verse 18 tells us this, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. And not that the Lord is exasperated by our stupidity and in crisis removes himself completely because we are all too much. For that is sometimes, I think, what we fear. We can actually ask for help. He is near every single time. So is it possible then that this clear statement of four steps, instead of arguing with it and proving how much it doesn't work, could in fact be a formula? If I pray worries, plus tell needs, plus remember thankfulness, does that equal God's peace? Can I trust my life, our lives, to God with prayer and thanksgiving? Does my Father in heaven know me and care for me? Is the Lord near in uncertainty and anxiety? It's very blatant in this verse. We are not to worry about anything. And we are in direct contrast to that statement meant to pray about everything, all of it, in honest, open, raw words, telling God what we need. It's not don't be anxious, sort yourself out, good luck. It's come to me, tell me, leave it with me, say it out loud, all the ugly bits. There's nothing but love and safety in him. In doing so, one acknowledges utter dependence on God while at the same time expressing complete trust in him. To include thankfulness in this helps us to realise this dependence, our lack of control and ability to make everything happen. Although we fight this every time, like tiny people raising tiny fists to God and squeaking out our superior abilities to have it all sorted, we need his good humour. We need his goodness and his generosity, and we need to posture ourselves to receive from him. Gordon Fee says this, Thanksgiving does not mean say thank you in advance for gifts that you're waiting to be received. Rather, it's the basic posture of the believer. So when you read that verse, think of Thanksgiving as a posture that you are coming to him with, not your ability to smile and suck it up and say, okay, thanks, I think it's probably going to work out fine. The opposite mentality of not following this formula is this, You worry about everything. You can't pray about any of it because you don't actually trust who God is. And partly that could be of your perception of who God is is not healthy and who you are in him is not currently healthy. So then you can't tell him what you need. You get stuck in denial. You have to bring about false peace and distraction and numbness. And then this prevents you from opening up to him. It's a very messy cycle. Just read about it in the book. Remember, though, that this is not about generating my own peace. I'm not sitting here then trying to manufacture a pretend state where I hide my worries, dig deep and just stay quiet until the storm passes. I'm actually asking to borrow God's peace, his stillness, his quietness, his presence, the peace that I haven't got sorted for myself already. It's a little taste of the kingdom. The peace in verse 7 is the kind of peace that exceeds overthinking. 
It exceeds and then actively stands guard over our hearts and our minds and helps us hold ourselves into Jesus. It's not a wishy-washy peace. It's the prince of peace. It's something firm that we can take hold of. Verse 7, then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. This is not a couple of sentences about how well you now manage it. This is about experiencing God's peace, his peace, a life lived in Jesus. And he's okay with worry. He understands the need for peace. We can actually trust him and we do not have to have it all figured out. Paul is encouraging us to do this. This is not a God and we are not a community in which you have to negate these things and then bury them to try and walk yourself through the door. This is the hospital. This is the triage. This is the collection of imperfect people who hold on to grace and they trust in peace. And this is where we all get to bring these things to God in prayer as a community, as a people available to receive because we are not alone. This is where we also gently recommend that you might need to talk to someone, that you might need to seek pastoral care, that you might need to check in with your GP, that you might need to go to a therapist, you might need a cup of tea with a trusted friend. You might just need to learn to lean into practices of rest, just being able to put your hand up and ask for help. God is still present when you may need anxiety medication. He is not separate from this. God is comfortable in therapeutic spaces. He doesn't say, oh, we're a bit awkward, just going to leave the room where you explore your cognitive behaviour therapy and have a snot-filled meltdown session with your counsellor. We cannot be too awkward or too honest or too broken for him. He renews our mind. He restores our soul. He makes our path straight and he calls himself our refuge. He is our good shepherd and our pain is known to him. 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I love this image of casting. I picture myself throwing stuff at him, heaving it off my shoulders, heaving it off my heart, giving him the list that have come out of my mind. And it's all clumsy and it's all dramatic and I'm dumping it at his feet and I'm not even checking if he's okay with it. And I'm not even checking if I'm doing it right. I'm just flinging the stuff at him because I want rid of it and I want him to have it and I trust it to his care. Some stuff I want him just to have and some stuff I just need him to deal with. Either way, my job is to let it go. Beth Moore describes Paul's use of the military metaphor, that guarding of our hearts, as the peace of the divine that is like a shield. And again, hear those words that keeps the community safe. We are not alone in this. We are protected from retaliation. The peace is granted through prayer and it will keep them free from worries and anxieties, as well as help them, helping them to be loving towards everyone, even their opponents. She's just summarized the big part of one to seven. And I land with Paul as he says this, his peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Live in Jesus, not at some awkward distance because you're worried about how he'll react, not at some awkward distance because you're like, well, I've just got to go and deal with this stuff that I don't want to talk to anyone about, but live in him, tuck yourself in him. This is not about leaving here this morning with another list of things to do. This is not about, okay, great, thanks for that, Charlotte. I've got some bitterness to resolve, some humility to find, some church wounds to magically overcome. I've got a community to be brave to, joy to find in overcoming, gentleness towards others to drum up whilst remaining anxiety-free, full of peace, and then failing. 
completely exhausted and disappointed upon immediate failure. This is not what I'm asking you to do. This is about knowing who you are in him, understanding that it's his humility you can clothe yourself in, his community you can belong to, his joy you can borrow, his peace you can lean into, his grace for the fight, his love and his wholeness that we are all called to and called into. In these verses, Paul is calling the Philippians and us to quite a lot. He's covered and recovered a lot of ground, a lot of encouragement and a lot of wisdom and a lot of exhortation. But there is a connection. There's a thread in all these verses that helps us see ourselves as a church and as individuals. A life in Christ looks like this. We are a community. We value community. We are not consumers. We are worshippers. We are a body. We are imperfect. We are dependent on God and we are strengthened by each other. We grow formationally in joy and peace and prayer as apprentices of Jesus. We set our hearts and minds on unity through humility and in following the Jesus servant hearted attitude. We have the mind of Christ and we are friends of the cross. We resolve conflict with integrity because we belong to the Lord. We acknowledge the hurt and we look to healing. We pursue shalom. We pursue wholeness. Gordon Fee says, in a world where fear is a much greater reality than joy, our privilege is to live out the gospel of true shalom, wholeness in every sense of the word, and to point others to its source. We had a beautiful um, practice in my Methodist church growing up of singing the doxology and holding hands. So fear the things I'm about to ask you to do. And I've tried really hard. I'm, I'm not a singer, but I cannot hear the words from Jude 24 and 25 without the singing coming to mind. And I remember as a child watching my whole church hold hands, which must have been super awkward. But these are the words. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless, is the tune coming to anyone's mind, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. I am not going to make you hold hands, otherwise my whole speech on community and unity might in fact fall apart. But I'd love you to stand as I pray these words over you. My heart has been heavy this week, as I feel for some of you who carry wounds, who are sitting here with bandages, and they leak a little, and you are anxious about how you resolve your feelings of being hurt in community whilst being in a community. I want to say on behalf of our leadership team, on behalf of our church, you are welcome here. You are safe here. Our expectation is you grow. Our expectation is not that you are perfect. Our expectation is that you are honest, not that you try and hold it together. We cannot lead by that example ourselves. Our expectation here is that we become a community founded on humility and unity in grace and we know there will be times that we disappoint and hurt you and we know there will be times that you feel that from others but our heart is for humility our heart is for unity our heart is to follow Paul's example and Jesus's example of of being that community for each other let me just say these words over you again now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our saviour be glory and majesty dominion and power both now and forever amen